Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the brand new Independent Republic of Mike Graham. And what you see around you is a thing of great beauty, isn't it? Can you see what's going on here? We've got a fantastic new studio. We are downstairs. We are exactly where we need to be, right at the heart of everything inside the news building here in London. And of course, what we have for you in this show is nothing short of what we give you every single week, but also turbocharged. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Rwanda deportation scheme because uh, it looks like it could go ahead after all. Rishi Sunak, uh, who's up at party conference, is preparing to ignore the European lawyers that grounded the first attempted flights in June last year. Uh, the European Court of Human Rights, of course, that is. Jeremy Hunt spoke to talk today, this morning, and Jeremy Kyle asked where the Chancellor sits on Suella Braverman's stance on stopping the boats. Suella Braverman wouldn't use my words, I wouldn't use her words, but she is absolutely right that the, the social contract that makes Britain one of the most tolerant countries in the world when it comes to immigrants depends on fairness. And what we're seeing at the moment uh, with these criminal gangs smuggling thousands of people over the channel is not fair. Uh, it's an abuse of uh, the way the law works in Britain. It's an abuse of all the public services that you get free of charge here. And she is absolutely right to tackle that, because otherwise we will undermine that social contract. Jeremy Hunt there saying that uh, this is the thing that now needs to happen. I'm joined this morning uh, by former Brexit Party MEP Ben Habib, video commenters at Telegraph, Stephen Edgington. Very good morning to both of you. Uh, ben, let me start with you. Uh, the problem we've had here, and we've talked about it, I don't know, for how many years, Ben, you yeah. and I, um, <laughs> is the ECHR is, is an, an, an organisation and, and a sort of established organisation that sits sort of nowhere uh, and kind of sends down these prognostications which may or may not mean anything. Some countries accept them, some countries don't accept them. We, for some reason, always have accepted them. And I've been saying for ages, why don't we just ignore them? Now, apparently, the government is set to do that. Well, I mean, whether the government actually does do what it says it's going to do remains to be seen. But you're quite right. The European Court of Human Rights makes up laws on its own. It's mm. not... It doesn't receive its laws from a legislature. Right. It has 16 guiding principles, which it's had ever since it was set up just after World War II. And it interprets those guiding principles as it sees fit. Yeah. So it is actually making law as it goes along. And, of course, it is the supreme judicial body when it comes to human rights in the United Kingdom. Even Supreme Court judgments in the UK can be overturned yeah. by the European Court of Human Rights. And... It's, it's made laws which have, uh, have made it incredibly difficult for the government to actually give effect to what it wishes to mm. do from a democratically uh, legitimate perspective. 
And so it does need to be reined back in. Ideally, I think, actually, we need to leave the Convention of Human Rights. The notion that the United Kingdom leaving that convention would result in somehow a diminution of human rights in the UK yeah. is a fundamentally flawed Yeah, or, or indeed would turn us into some kind of pariah nation. I know, it's completely wrong. I mean, we led the establishment. I mean, Stephen will know much be better than me, but we led the establishment of human rights across mm. the globe at a time when we had an empire, at a time when we were in the zenith of our, yeah. uh, our, our power. And we're not prone to act in that way. But the thing about illegal migration and the European Court of Human Rights is that it's a bit of a red herring, frankly, mm. Mike. Yes, we should leave the European Convention and, and move away from the Court of Human Rights, but we don't need to do that to stop the boats. Mm. Stopping the boats is simply, as it says on the tin, stop the boats. Yeah. It's a physical process which involves border control, stopping them at the entry of our territorial waters before they become a problem for the British mm. judicial system. You only need to rely on the European Court of Human Rights once they've landed either on a British boat or on our shores. Right. And we should stop them using the provisions of international law which entitle us to prevent illegal migration into the country. And indeed, I would argue our government is obliged under that entitlement to fulfil it. And we'd never have a problem mm. with the ECHR in the first place. No, indeed. Stephen Ben's right, I think, isn't he? Because the problem here is the fact that these people will continue to come here as long as they know that once they get here, they can give some cock and bull story to the Home Office about whether they're being persecuted somewhere in a far-off land, uh, that they've got relatives here or some other mumbo-jumbo they can make up, and they'll be able to stay here. The hope is that if they can send some people to Rwanda, maybe they'll stop coming. But will they? Well, this is the key point, isn't it? This European... Court of Human Rights decision that's going to be made in November all focuses on whether the government is able to deport migrants right. to Rwanda. And the government's argument is that this will deter illegal migrants coming across the channel because eventually they'll end up in Rwanda. Mm. Whether that's the case, I think, is highly unlikely. I think that Ben's right. This is a red herring. I think this whole row is aimed at distracting you from the fact that we've had record legal migration, yeah. which the Conservatives have control over and mm. decided against uh, restricting, despite all of their promises, and obviously record illegal migration, tens of thousands of people coming across the channel. And this ECHR row is all aimed at getting people excited in uh, newspapers and on TV stations, mm. but it actually distracts from the fact that the Conservative Party have completely failed on this issue, and we have an absolutely disastrous situation Whereas, as I say, we have record numbers coming in, causing all sorts of problems, uh, you know, NHS waiting right. times, all of these things, housing, uh, you know, look, there's not enough houses. It's a huge disaster, and this ECHR thing is just a distraction. Yeah, I think that is a problem, isn't it, Ben? The ECHR uh, sounds good. Um, lots of people on the right side of the Tory party will say, good, yeah, let's do it, go our own way, yeah. let's absolutely plough our own furrow, you know, <laughs> let's absolutely prove that we can do whatever we want. But, I mean, everything they've said that they were going to do has not worked. You know, they've no. given hundreds of millions of pounds to the French, uh, who seem to think that for every pound they get, they send us another 10 migrants, you know, on a boat. They've also uh, promised to send people to Rwanda, which hasn't happened. Ascension Island's been mentioned. I think Georgia came up once. You know, the Fulton Islands has been a, uh, an idea. Then they had the Bibby Stockholm. Nobody even talks about that anymore. I don't even know no. if they're going to be on it. I mean, that was going to be you 500 know. people yeah, one I day's mean, intake. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> even if they were to get the Rwanda plan up and running, they're only going to send something like 3% yeah. of the people that come in the first place. Yeah. So Look, the I mean, whole thing no is, is, is just ruined, isn't yeah. it? There's no way the Rwanda plan's going to 
uh, act as a deterrent. Um, when you've made the journey that some of these people have made, right, you know, from Syria all the way through Europe to Calais, brave law enforcement crossed the channel, um, the, no, the, the risk of 10% of you or 5 to 10% of you being deported to Rwanda is frankly a negligible risk. Right. It will not act as a deterrent. And the other thing we've got to remember is that we spend £50,000 a year per migrant. The French spend £5,000 a year per migrant. Yeah. Of course they're going to be attracted to come to the United Kingdom. We're so incredibly generous. But the social contract, and I just want to come back to something really pertinent that Stephen uh, identified, the social contract to which Jeremy Hunt referred between the state and the people doesn't apply just to illegal migration. The social contract applies to legal migration. We had 1.1 million people enter this country legally last year. Mm. That is a rate of change in the underlying demography of this country with which we cannot cope. Yes. There's an economic impact. We all tend to focus on the economic impact, but there is a social impact. It's damaging the fabric of the United Kingdom. And one of the great things that Suella uh, made in her speech was unashamedly identifying that, revealing it, and talking about it for the first time mm. that I've heard a cabinet minister speak yeah. about it. You know, multiculturalism is all well and good if migrants come in at a pace where our collective values can evolve for the betterment of their overall country. Mm. But the migration that's taking place is taking place so fast yeah. that multiculturalism is, is existing in isolated communities, not homogenizing, not getting the benefit for the, for the nation to move forward. And we're, be we're becoming a divided mm. nation. We don't want that. No, this point has been made, Stephen, hasn't it, uh, over the last few days, not just by Sola Braverman, by others who have said, we do now have parts of this country which are kind of segregated, not necessarily um, between you know, migrants and the people that were here before they came, but between migrants. You know, there's different migrant communities Absolutely. growing up in places like Leicester and Bradford and other, and, and other cities around uh, the country, where you have, you know, sort of internal uh, feuds, religious feuds sometimes, coming from places like the Indian subcontinent. Um, and kind of transplanting themselves into Britain, which seems bizarre, doesn't it? Absolutely. Well, it's not bizarre. I mean, it, it is reality. Yeah. And I think that... Yeah, but it when, shouldn't be happening, is what I mean. Of course. And when politicians make speeches like Suella Braverman did about this, up until five minutes ago, this was completely accepted by every prime minister, every person pretty much in all of mainstream politics. We all understand that multiculturalism has, I think, has failed. Until yeah. very, very recently, that was sort of an understanding, you know, a mainstream kind of talking point. And again, to me, this is all just rhetoric. This is all just a distraction. Suella Braverman can say exactly what she wants. And I'm glad, I'm glad she's making this speech. I'm glad she's making these points. But the reality is, under her uh, home secretary, her, her sort of period, her watch, as, her watch exactly, yeah. um, we've seen, as I said, legal, legal migration at record numbers, mm. illegal migration at record numbers. And this is causing that great disaster division between different ethnic groups, as you say, and people have not been integrated. Diversity is not a strength, despite what Sadiq Khan and others say. It is actually a weakness, mm. and it has caused a huge amount of social tension across the country. And I think what Solar Braverman says is welcome, but again, it's all just words. I don't see why we should believe the Conservatives on any well, of this Well, unfortunately, stuff. that is where they're going at the moment, isn't it? With Rishi Sunak at the helm and Suella Braverman making statements and, and, and promises to, to, to the public which none of which really appeared to be being kept. I mean, like the 20 mile an hour thing um, was shown up, wasn't it, at the weekend when Rishi Sunak <laughs> did an interview. What when a he said, when he, was asked, when he was asked, you know, <laughs> well, how are you actually going to impose this on local councils who basically have the right to set their speed limit in their own um, areas? 
He said, well, we're going to recommend it to them. Okay. You know, we're going to recommend that you don't do it. It's like, well, it's hardly, it's like somebody coming, you think he's coming with a gun and he turns up with a feather duster <laughs> and you go, well, maybe I just won't bother doing it then. What's the difference? Yeah. You know, but isn't it true to say as well, though, some people I've heard making this argument that multiculturalism has worked in one way. We've now got a much more multicultural government than we've ever had, you know, which is kind of odd given the way that they're governing, you know, but we have never seen, I don't think, you know, uh, a more diverse government and a more diverse cabinet, I think, ever. And you would never have expected the Tory party to be the party that did that. And what, Sorry, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think that, that, you know, there are certain individuals who have obviously made great successes here, who've come over here and, and done brilliantly, and we should all yeah. know, think that that's a brilliant success. However, there are countries in the world that have far you know, greater advantages by not being multicultural. Mm. And when you look to places like Japan, when yeah. you look to places like Poland, they're very, very safe. They have homogenous societies. There's a sense of kind of social cohesion that doesn't exist in Britain. And we, politicians can laud and say, Britain's this great example of multiculturalism. But actually, when you compare our nation to places like Poland and Japan, we have huge issues in terms of crime rates and in terms of all of the things that you mentioned, ethnic division yeah. between different groups, that they don't have. So right. I think that it's important to remember, we, you know, we do have options as a country, and countries can take different choices on these things. And we've, cha- we've chosen a very, very, mm. um, I think, disastrous road. Yeah, also, you might make the same argument, I suppose, about people in government as I make about the BBC, you know, which claims to be ethnically diverse, but actually isn't, because no matter what colour you are in the BBC, you probably went to university and you're probably quite middle class. So what they don't have is any white working class kids actually making it through the ranks of the BBC. Similarly in government, um, Ben, you would say the same thing. You know, Rishi Sunak has about as much in common with most of the people in Southall uh, as I do. Well, his pitch when he was seeking to be Prime Minister was all about the hardships he suffered as a child, having gone to Winchester College right. and then Oxford University and then Stanford and working at Goldman Sachs. Yeah, Woo-hoo. I know. What a tough life he's Listen, had. I mean, if you missed out on getting a job at JP Morgan, it must have been <laughs> devastating for him, you know, absolutely ridiculous. We've got a couple of, uh, of, of thoughts here from uh, many of you who are tweeting in, uh, which you can do, of course. Rena says, I'm so shocked to hear an asylum seeker claim he was gay to gain access to this country. You're not just gaming the system, you're making life harder for a marginalised group. Uh, Ian says, I don't mind people coming to this country if they're fleeing persecution, but how many of the people we are paying to house in hotels are from Albania. Uh, And Jamie says, I agree with both gents. Multiculturalism has sadly failed, and so have our useless government. I mean, just to finish up um, on this particular topic, this is a a Conservative Party conference week. There's obviously going to be a lot of toing and froing. There's plenty of infighting going on. I mean, is this, in your view, Ben, and I'll ask you, Stephen, in a minute, sort of make or break for Rishi Sunak? Is this when he has to actually start delivering and making promises that he can actually keep? I mean, the, the time is running out very, very fast for Rishi Sunak. In fact, I'd say it's run out. Yeah. And, we, and, and, I, and I think the death knell, the final death knell was this conference, the opening couple of days, where we've seen so much infighting, positioning. I mean, one, one peer, Tory peer, advocating that donors should desert the Conservative Party. Yeah. I mean, what an extraordinary thing to hear at a Conservative Party conference. No, I think, I think Rishi Sunak is a busted flush. He's, yeah. uh, he's done. Stephen? I think politicians have been asking and journalists have been asking this question for the last 13 years. Is it now time for the Conservatives to deliver on their promises? I think all we have to do is look at their record and say, I think we can predict the future pretty easily. Yeah. Now, uh, here's what we're going to talk about. Wokery, because we've heard about a new ridiculous example of it in Whitehall. Uh, Because what we've got here is Stephen Edgington. Uh, He's with me, as is Ben Habib. And Stephen, your column uh, this weekend has been 
all about the wokery that has hit Whitehall. And we've talked about it on this show an awful lot of times because, you know, from, from not working from the office, from not bothering to go in, from making sure your pronouns appear on the end of every email you send, making sure there's a diversity, you know, seminar every five minutes. I mean, what have you found and, and how bad is it? This is something I've been reporting on for a few years now. And at the weekend on Sunday, we did a story about the Royal Navy issuing a guide on what they call trans awareness right. for Royal Navy personnel. And within this guide, they tell Royal Navy sailors, etc., that they should use p- different people's pronouns, including Z, Zer, right. HIR, things that what you What is Z, Zer? What, what is, is that? Well, it's what they call a neo pronoun. And I think viewers might have to research on that. <laughs> a neo pronoun. I mean, come on. But it also says that they, have, they should introduce their pronouns before interactions and meetings. That's the almost direct quote. So, um, you know, imagine you can say, sort of, Lord Nelson. Every man, expe- England expects every man slash woman slash non-binary to do his duty. <laughs> yeah, um, it doesn't but, sound as good, does it? Th- this is the interesting thing about this story. <laughs> Rising. <laughs> There's so many. I've done so many stories about wokeness in Whitehall, but this one was was unique in a way because the Ministry of Defence actually wrote back immediately and said that this uh, this guidance was was unacceptable, basically, and they're going mm. to review it. So this is almost a win for us. Oh, right. So you actually got them to row back on it, as it were, uh, to actually go, maybe we've actually gone a bit too far here. Because also, did you not mention the fact that Nelson, of course, would have been categorised as disabled in one way, shape or form? So they've had to have had something allowing for that as well. <laughs> he was disabled in many ways, so they would call him a diverse individual, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe the neurodiverse. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember, I don't know whether you are, Ben, Stephen probably isn't, uh, when Hello Sailor actually meant something. Um, uh, <laughs> To people, um, but apparently you probably wouldn't be allowed to say that now. But it is, I mean, the wor- worse than, than what they're doing inside of these organisations, these government departments, it seems to me, um, is what they're actually then resulting policy means. Because what they're actually doing is, while they're sitting there making sure that their pronouns are all correct and their diversity quotient is what it should be, the, the, the end result is what policy then gets made. And then they try and push it onto everybody else. But the point with this in the Royal Navy is that if even an institution like the Ministry of Defence can be captured by these woke zealots, then we have no chance. Yeah. Because the Ministry of Defence and the Royal Navy, etc., are meant to be the most kind of conservative bulwarks, right. conservative bastions within government. If you think any department is going to be full of conservatives, you would have thought that it would have been the military. Right. Unfortunately, we've even seen the military captured yeah. by this yeah. stuff. And this and has the Royal real, Air Force. This has real-world yeah. co- consequences. As you yeah. say, in the, Royal, in the Royal Air Force, they were found to mm. have discriminated against white men because of diversity yeah. initiatives. In the Royal Navy, they... In the reporting that I've done at the weekend, they're also talking about white privilege and other sort of other kind of contentious mm. uh, subjects. And I think that the Royal, people in the Royal Navy have told me that this has a real impact on their work yeah. because if their job is to fight and their job is to be aggressive. And this same guidance told them that they had to avoid what they called microaggressions. Right. The whole point of the Navy is to be exactly. aggressive. Well, that's right. That's, I mean, why we, that's why we don't have the political will to stop the boats. No. Because we've hijacked our own mm. ability to fight, well, our because, own ability to stand you know, up if, for if ourselves. If, you, if you're getting an order to, to fire on the enemy from uh, the boat that you happen to be on um, and suddenly somebody says, well, hang on a minute, you know, don't you think we should talk to them first or, you know, perhaps try and reason it out before we fire on them, uh, perhaps invite them for tea? You know, <laughs> that's not the way it works, is it? I mean, this is what's happened to the police as well. The police have now ceased to become yeah. uh, an effective actual police force because they don't arrest criminals anymore. Instead, what they do is they take offence, as that woman did um, famously up in the northeast. you know, who was, who, was, who was described as looking like my lesbian nana, you know, and suddenly that was the biggest crime that they could have thought of and they had to arrest somebody because it was hateful. You know, what about the guy who was probably stabbed to death around the corner who they weren't bothering with? But, you know, Mike, this is all by design. Mm. This hasn't happened accidentally. 
we have regulated our way into this position. There are Companies Act, Equality, uh, Equalities Act, yeah. the Climate Change Act, yeah. um, listing regulations. Where it's not just uh, in the civil service, it's right mm. across the listed private sector. All pension funds, accountancy firms, they're all regulated, to, required in, to promote DEI, mm. diversity, equality and inclusion. Yeah. And that's what you have to do if you have rampant uh, immigration, unbridled immigration. In order to prevent the kind of schisms that we were talking about, you've got to tilt the playing field against the white mm. predominant indigenous population to protect the people who you brought in at this vast rate for fear that there won't be harmony unless you can yeah. regulate your way to that position. This is joined up thinking. So when they say they're going to cut back immigration, when they say they're going to, you know, they recognize the damage it's doing to the social fabric, actually that's, that's a complete deception. Mm. This is all part of a design. And you know who started all of this? It was Tony Blair. Of course. Tony Blair and his coterie of politicians hold the nation state in contempt. They believe on oper in operating on a global basis. They want to hollow out domestic culture. They want us to operate right across supranational institutions. And if you, if you take that view, why do you care about rampant immigration? Mm. Everyone's the yeah. same take them in from another country. Yeah. They are hollowing out nation states so they can give effect to their, it sounds uh, almost conspiratorial, it's not, mm. to give effect to their... Well, I heard David Lammy speak at the weekend and he said these words, basically immigration is inevitable. It's Global inevitable. immigration is inevitable. But unbridled immigration is not inevitable. And I don't agree, I'm with you, Stephen. I don't see how you could admit that immigration is inevitable. Well, it's not inevitable if you say it isn't. Well, I've already told you two examples yeah. of where they've re restricted immigration, Japan and yeah. Poland. And right. they, you know, they've got their own issues, but one of them isn't, isn't necessarily crime. It isn't right. this social uh, tension. Mm. It isn't all of the problems that we have in Britain mm. because of multiculturalism. But to get back to this woke Whitehall issue, I think as well, you know, this is all about diversity and inclusion. That's the language that they use. And I think, you know, Blair is obviously to blame somewhat, but, but it's also this American culture. And this, this month is supposedly Black History Month. This is a very American concept. And again, they are trying to impose American history of slavery and racism mm. onto Britain. And the result of that, unfortunately, is attacks on white men. I know that's not a very popular thing to mm. say, but as we said, in the Royal, Royal uh, Air Force, we've seen 160 white men were discriminated against. The Royal Air Force apologised for that. And we're only going to see this expand. And I think many, many civil servants in Whitehall, and the crucial thing about this being in Whitehall, is that government money is going on it, taxpayer money is going on it, civil servants are wasting vast amount of time discussing diversity, etc. And it feels like if you are a civil servant and you aren't in those diverse groups, in other words, if you are a white man, in a way, I think many of them feel that they are under attack. Mm. What kind of mechanism, mechanisms are in place to try and help them in their career? Why aren't there lots of different groups and do, uh, sort of groups helping them and boosting them, unlike every other di supposed diverse group in the UK? Mm. So they have the Equality Act, which protects nine characteristics, you know, sex, gender, race, all of these other things. And this well, I can think of those three, that's fine. But what are the other six, then? D disability, I think, right. gender transitioning, age... I mean, it must be adding to it every five minutes. But the way the Equalities Act works, ultimately, is to discriminate wholly against people like you, Mike, mm. who are white, yeah. male, yeah. middle-aged and yeah. heterosexual. Yeah. You are despised Allegedly. by the Equalities Act. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, no, nobody wants to be equal with me. Uh, because I'm at the top of it all. You know, I sit at the top of the heap. You can't be equal with me unless you fight me off and kick me off the top. I mean, that's what education is supposed to give you. That's what, you know, competition is supposed to give you. We're not all equal, I'm afraid. I mean, I said this to my kids when yeah. they were being raised. I said, you know, unfortunately, we're not all created equal. We might think we are, 
but unfortunately some people have more advantages than you. And you'll always meet somebody who's yeah. better off Can than I say you. One more you'll thing always meet somebody point. who's worse off than you. The one more thing, just developing what you've said. When you start discriminating in favour of ethnic minorities, sexual preferences, yeah. etc., and you move away from meritocracy, mm. you do huge damage, not just to the armed forces, not just to the institutions that govern this country, but to private business, to our economic ecosystem. We are economically damaging ourselves greatly by adopting this ideology. So when people say, oh, the culture war is just one, you know, irrelevant little thing that mm. politicians indulge in, no, it's having a direct adverse, material adverse economic impact on the United Kingdom. We've got to stop it. Meritocracy has to be the only yardstick by which people get yeah. their jobs. It has to be, absolutely right. Listen, we could do this for a long time. We'll have to get you guys back on. Thank you very much indeed. Ben Habib, uh, Stephen Nogent from The Telegraph. Brilliant, absolutely fantastic. The first show uh, of the new studio. Uh, we're not going to be shy in coming forward about these opinions. This is a place to have opinions. It's a place for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And now, on The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, it's time for this. Now, you might have heard about something called Net Zero. Uh, which is the bane of everybody's life. Even Rishi Sunak doesn't think it's actually a very good idea anymore because he thinks there might be a few votes in it. He just recently decided to push back on the idea that we should change all cars to electric cars, electric vehicles from the year 2030, that we should no longer make um, petrol and diesel engines and that nobody wants to drive them around because it's so horrible and ghastly and smelly and polluting. Well, I'm afraid the net zero madness has now reached the NHS. You might have heard me talk before about NHS coordinators for net zero. They actually have employed people for some large amounts of money, 120,000 here, 130,000 there, for net zero coordinators in every single hospital trust in the country. They're already wasting loads of money on that. But guess what they're recommending now? Because this can only have come from the net zero brigade. They're now recommending that we do away with gas as an anaesthetic. Why? Because it's bad for the climate. That's what they've actually said. They're all on a jolly down in Portugal. Um, during the strike action, by the way, uh, they're all talking about how can we best make the NHS more green? Well, how about you concentrate on making it actually work? How about you concentrate on it actually bringing people in and making them better instead of killing them, uh, which is what some doctors do and what some nurses do and what some hospital trusts do? Because the NHS is broken. And the last thing you now need is for the NHS to say, we're just going to give you a little operation here, but I'm afraid we're not allowed to use any gas on you, uh, so we're just going to hit you with a hammer or a mallet or something like that. We're just going to put a cloth over your face and chloroform you out for a few hours. I mean, it's unbelievable what these people are doing. What is wrong with them? For God's sake, get some sense into the NHS and get the net zero coordinators out the door. Thanks very much indeed. Now, isn't it brilliant? I mean, I have to say, I've never been this excited. I was talking to Chris Evans on Virgin Radio this morning, uh, and he said to me, he said, it's a very exciting day. He said, but to be fair, he said, you're always excited, aren't you? You're always excited. I said, well, I am because I love what I do. I love the people uh, that I get to talk to. I love the guests on this show. I love the callers as well. So let's not forget, we're still taking calls on this show because it is the place to hear your views. 0344 499 1000. Because we hear what you say and we tell the powers that be exactly what you want them to do. And already... We're starting to get some results. The Tories are already moving fast in our direction. They've pushed Newton Net Zero back a, bit, a little bit. They're now talking about ignoring the ECHR, which I told them to do about three months ago. And what better news than that than to join me in the studio, uh, Talk TV's new breakfast show host, Mr Jeremy Carl from Talk Today, which launched this morning. It did. It did. Now, we're going to talk about a very powerful exclusive that you did in a minute, but let's just say 
Uh, isn't it nice to be in the same studio like this with this beautiful um, array of, of graphics around me? It's red, white, and blue, which are my colours, by the way. Red, white, and blue. Uh, they don't run either. No, no. A bit like the Ryder Cup team. I've got the inside scoop on that. Well, I know you have because uh, you're mates with some of those people. I've got the real inside scoop. Uh, yeah. Can I just say, I'm with you. We're the, we're the most two positive people in this building, for God's yeah. sake. This is the this is the beginning. What's this not is to the like? It's amazing. And, yeah. and we had listen, we had a we had a great start this morning, and Nick did a great job. We had the chance of the Exchequer on. Yeah. Uh, loads and loads of response, which is lovely. But that's just day one. We've got another five thousand and sixty-eight days to go. Apparently. I mean, heaven's sake, you know, this is exactly right. I mean, this is not as good as it gets because it gets better every day. Absolutely incredible. So. Um, you this morning, amongst the amazing array of guests that you had uh, in your new show with Nicola Thorpe, um, you basically interviewed the father of Jamie Bolger. Tell us a bit about that. So Ralph Bolger, um, I've known since I interviewed him years ago, about eight years ago, and he trusted me to do that and he wanted to come and do it this morning. I mean, Ralph Bolger is the most incredible man slash broken. You only have mm. to look at him. Everybody knows the story of Jamie Bolger. My particular anger, and I share it completely with Ralph when I put this station right behind him, is that that unfortunately, dreadful, dreadful, poor thing that happened to that boy. Yeah. Uh, after face. 30s, I mean, 33 uh, in, a, in a week's time, young mm. Jamie, and it destroyed his family and it destroyed some other. And I think sometimes along the line, Mikey, people forget. Mm. The two kids that did it, Thompson and Venables, yeah. had tried to get another kid five yeah. minutes before. Mm. The thing about this John Venables, who's facing a parole hearing in November... Unbelievable. Well, w worse than that, he's been let out twice before, yeah. and the twice he's been let out, they found child abuse pictures... Yes. OK, this is a ticking time bomb. Right. And I had Ralph on for the simple reason that I share absolutely his belief mm. that that piece of whatever should rot in hell for all eternity. Mm. And I will do whatever it takes to support Ralph to ensure that John Venables never sees the light of day. How does that work? I mean, it seems incredible, doesn't it? That, that you know, you've got one part of the kind of justice system saying, oh, we must give people a second chance. Well, fine. But if you give them a second chance and they then have to get taken back in, well, that's the end, isn't it? Shouldn't it, it isn't be the it end? Not fair to say, and your, your viewers and listeners will, will agree with this, no doubt, that there are certain people that you can't rehabilitate. There are certain evil, bad mm. apples, rotten apples mm. in our society. John Venables is is one of those, yes. and he should never, ever be allowed out. And I challenge Alex Chalk, the Justice Secretary, to come on this, well, our show, your show, whatever show, nothing yet. But we're going to get him, because I'm not giving up on this. Jamie no. Bolger deserves for that piece of rubbish to stay in yeah. prison forever. Yeah, we will be running this campaign. Jeremy started it. We'll keep it going. But we've got a particularly moving clip from the interview, Jeremy. Let's take a look. If you had to sum up what it's done to you as a man, what would you say? Destroyed But you're fighting on... And you're doing this for other people. Yeah. And your strength really, really shines through. And we're so grateful for the work that you're doing because you could so easily have left this in your past and you would have every right to do that. But you're not doing this for yourself anymore. You're doing it for other people. Yeah. Are you OK? What would give you some semblance of peace? Just keep on I'm going to look directly down camera one and I'm going to say something to the Justice Secretary in this country, Alex Chalk, who has been in the job six months. We're going to reach out to you, Alex Chalk. I'd like somebody from the government, from the Justice Department, which at best is very, very wrong in this instance, to explain to talk today how it is that somebody who can murder a child in a premeditated way be released on several occasions only to re-offend and, as Nicola quite rightly said, child abuse uh, accusations... Why the father of that victim, 30 years on, Mr Chalk, needs to come on a television pro programme to prove through his sadness and his, the horror that he's had to deal with, he and his family, 
that that man should stay behind bars. You're the man that controls this. We want to hear from you. I was working for newspapers when this happened and when um, the report came out, and I read that report, and some of the things in it were never published because they couldn't be. They were yeah. so horrible, so awful, and, and, just horrendous. And, and, and I found it really interesting with Nick, because Nick, as you know, um, is uh, going to be a mum. Mm. And you could see during the interview what it meant. Yeah. That, that There is not a parent. You've got four kids, I've got six. You could not possibly get anything other than the same reaction from anybody that's created a life. How there is any conceivable way that John Venables can walk the streets again is is fundamentally mm. wrong. And if this country, that if our society cannot ensure that we put pressure on the government, I'm not starting something other than I, I know Ralph, well, you know, I, I like him and, I, and it's disgusting. And, and whatever we can do via the government, via this station, I'm going to do it, Mike, mm. because it's not right. Yeah. It's not right at all. So we love the show. Thank uh, you. They've given you another chance to do it tomorrow. Apparently we're back on tomorrow. Fantastic. Tory party well conference, just red meat for that's me, a, isn't it? That's, that's we had the chance on as well. Yeah, great result. I was quite... He was all right. Yeah, I was a bit worried about you when you said that. I'll have to talk to you about that. No, no, but what, no, I'll tell you how I mean by that. He was quite good at what he does, which is yeah. absolutely answer no questions. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. Do you want me to go now? No, I don't. All right. I want you to stay there then. for the whole show. Oh, um, But you might need a bit of a rest before he's back tomorrow at 6 o'clock uh, with Nicola Thorpe right here. Um, a talk today. Uh, so, uh, we've been having a lot of noise and um, fury going on about the Tory party conference in Manchester. Uh, Conservative MP for Uxbridge and South Ryslip, Steve Tuckwell, is joining us from there right now. Steve, uh, very, very good uh, morning. Thank you for joining us here on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. What's the atmosphere like up there? It sounds from here like there's a lot of people sort of ducking and diving, um, not going into certain, you know, no-go areas just in case they meet somebody they don't agree with. What's it like? Well, it's good to be here, Mike, on the first instance. I watch your show regularly, and it's nice to be part of your show for once. So, you know, for me, being the newly elected member for Uxbridge and South Ryslip, you know, I, I seem to be the person that people really want to talk to about how, you know, my by-election victory, you know, a few months ago now, has injected a lot of confidence into the Conservative Party, and we're going to be using the ingredients for my by-election victory going forward into the by-elections and into the general elections uh, next year. Yeah, but, I mean, seriously, there is an awful lot of difference of opinion within the party at the moment. I mean, I don't know whether you wish to align yourself with any particular part of it. My, my sense is that you're uh, kind of on, on our side, if you like, you know, the common-sense side of politics, uh, the, the place which is never right-wing or left-wing, it just, you know, straight down the line. You know, net zero uh, was a factor in your election, certainly. Um, the uh, the ULEZ charge was a factor in your election, um, I think there's no question that since Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, has decided that he's going to push net zero back a little bit, um, his, his polls ratings have gone up. Similarly, if he starts to take notice of Suella Bravman a little bit more, um, his poll ratings might go up again. It's, it's about trying to be more, as, as the Conservatives would say, conservative. Exactly. And, Mike, I, I don't consider myself to be a professional politician. You know, three and a half months ago, I never would have thought or dreamt that I would be the elected member for Uxbridge and South Ryslip, a place where I've been born and raised. But I have to say, in the many, many hundreds of people I've been speaking to in the last day and a half since I've been here, you know, I'm not sensing any splits. I'm sensing that there is a real opportunity here to, to reset the Conservative agenda, you know, get our message out to 
gap to the population. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from a, a variety of cabinet ministers later on today. And obviously, we've got the prime minister's speech on, on Wednesday. So, you know, I think this is a real opportunity. And there's a good vibe here in, in Manchester. You know, there's, I think it's record attendance. I think we've got record stands here. And we've got record delegates that are taking part in what is a very exciting, you know, three or four days up here in, in the great city of Manchester. And as far as the, 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 the main kind of thrust of, of what people have been saying to you in your constituency since you've been uh, uh, anointed as the new MP, sorry, elected, I should say, I shouldn't say anointed, um, what are they saying to you? Because, you know, obviously I listen to my callers every day. They, they worry about the migrant crisis. They want something done. They want the people coming here to be stopped from coming here. Enough is enough is what they say. You know, they don't want to be charged more to drive around. They don't want to be told to drive around in 20 mile an hour zones all the time either. Uh, you know, but there's a lot of crime to talk about as well. What, what are your constituents telling you? Well, again, as you'd expect, Mike, I've been, you know, since elected or anointed, as you, as you say, um, <laughs> I've been very busy in, in my constituency, you know, and the message that's coming back to me is, you know, they, they don't want you, Les, you know, they're still, they're still, you know, asking me to campaign with Susan Hall, the mayoral election uh, coming up in the next six or seven months to, you know, rid our great capital city of this terrible mayor and a terrible mayor who is soft on crime, but is tough on motorists. Um, and we need to be making sure that we send the strongest possible message to him through a great candidate, which is Susan Hall, and remove him from office because he is an absolute terrible mayor for London. And as far as um, uh, what you're going to see uh, Rishi Sunak do to stop the boats, you know, it's one thing to say, well, we can send a few people to Rwanda, but they've really got to stop those boats, haven't they? That's what's got to happen. Yeah, and I think that is, again, one of, one of the five priorities is about stopping the boats. And I think if you look at the statistics, it does actually show that there's been a, you know, a big year-on-year -year improvement. Certainly, we can see there are less boats coming over. We can certainly see that the, the deal that we struck with you know, Albania now has seen a 90% reduction in uh, Albanian crossings now. But I think there is more to do. And I think you know, we'll certainly see from the Prime Minister's speech on, on Wednesday you know, how progress is being made and how we continue to sort of stop the boats and you know, have proper immigration status into our great country. Yeah, exactly right. Um, just before you came on, uh, we were speaking to Jeremy Kyle about his interview this morning with um, Ralph Bolger, uh, the father of Jamie Bolger, because coming up, incredibly, you wouldn't believe this was actually happening, but it is happening. Um, one of his killers, John Venables, is up for parole apparently. Um, he's appealing, uh, Jeremy Kyle up there, is appealing to Alex Chalk, Justice Minister, to put a stop to this parole hearing um, do you think you could pass that message on to him for us? I, I can certainly uh, pass a pass message on to, to Alex, but I think we need to obviously just make sure, you know, whatever processes are in place, um, you know, justice needs to be done. We need to be sensible about, you know, parole hearings, and I'm sure common sense will prevail. Yeah, I mean, I think in the end, if somebody's let out once and then they re-offend in some way and they have to be brought back in, surely there should be a, a rule that says... You don't get parole again like another person would get it. You have to stay in for an extended period of time. Well, some have suggested to me, even, uh, you go back to the original sentence. Yeah. Well, I don't want to preempt what a parole board uh, might, might determine, but you know, there's certainly hope that common sense should prevail here. So uh, we need to just watch that very closely. Well, common sense is definitely what we need. And common sense is what we're not seeing. Front page of the Times today, uh, I have to say, which is an extraordinary, extraordinary story. Um, because of the NHS strikes, the NHS is paying some doctors, and one in particular, £7,900 for one shift because they're so short of doctors. This week we see the doctors are on strike again, both the junior doctors and the consultants. Um, people say the government should sit down and talk to them. I don't think they should. It's a very small number of people 
who are doing this, by the way, in terms of the doctors in this country. Mm. Most of them are actually turning up for work. But it's extraordinary, isn't it? It is. And, you know, in, in, a, in a life before I was a Member of Parliament, I had extensive dealings with trade unions during my time with Royal Mail. And I think, you know, you can make some significant transformational change, big changes, you know, when you work with trade unions and when you've got trade unions that are prepared to work with you and do the right thing, you know, for society, do the right thing for their members. There's a happy balance to be achieved there. So, you know, I think, I think the doctors certainly need to be reflecting on, on the industrial action that they are taking because it is causing a lot of frustration and problems for, for our people. Yeah, as, as, as are the rail strikes. Uh, they're back on again, aren't they? There's a work to rule, I think, going on today. They're on strike on Saturday. They're on strike again on Wednesday. Um, do you feel as if uh, there's any, any hope in getting those things settled? Well, again, I think, you know, dialogue is, is, is crucial, but there needs to be, you know, compromises on, on all sides. And again, my experience of working with trade unions is you can make some phenomenal big set-piece transformational change when everybody is aligned and everybody's working towards a common objective. So, you know, people do need to be getting around the table, you know, sorting out their differences so that members of the public, uh, travelling public or patients, you know, are no longer being disrupted by these devastating strikes. Steve, thanks very much uh, indeed. Steve Tuckwell there speaking Pleasure to us to be on, uh, for the first time as the new MP uh, for Uxbridge. That was Boris Johnson's old seat, of course, and he won it by and large because of ULEZ, because Sadiq Khan imposed this ridiculous expanded ULEZ charge, which the people of Uxbridge didn't want. And even though Labour would tip to win that particular seat, they didn't. So there might be some hope, at least, from uh, the, the Conservatives, that if they do things which are, in fact, what the people want, they might not lose the next election. We'll see. Now, you think of Parliament accidentally honouring a Nazi is something out of a TV sitcom, but no, this actually happened. Here is the Canadian Parliament's praising SS Galicia Division volunteer. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yaroslav Humka. We have here in the chamber today Ukrainian Canadians, Ukrainian Canadian world veteran, 
from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians and continues to support the troops today, even at his age of 98. Uh, the Speaker has since resigned. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has issued a grovelling apology. This was a mistake that has deeply embarrassed Parliament and Canada. All of us who were in this House on Friday regret deeply having stood and clapped, even though we did so unaware of the context. It was a horrendous violation of the memory of the millions of people who died in the Holocaust. Well, you'd have to say Justin Trudeau has been embarrassing Canada ever since he's been in charge, but that's another matter. Someone who wrote about this just recently, Mail on Sunday Colonist Peter Hitchens, as ever joins me uh, on a Monday. Peter, welcome to our new home. Um, and thank you very much for, for being here. Um, this is, I mean, you described it great, really, and, uh, uh, very well, I should say, when you said this is what happens when people don't understand history, when they have no knowledge of anything at all, but they just go, oh, look, someone from Ukraine must be a good guy. It is extraordinary, and it's, it's, in fact, it's part of the, the general state of mind that the world's got itself into over Ukraine, which is a vast oversimplification mm. of an immensely complicated problem. Yeah. And that vast oversimplification is very dangerous because it makes it very hard to reach the peace, which I think would benefit everybody involved, including, above all, actually, the country of Ukraine and its citizens. Right. Because if it's, as long as something is cast as if it's a, uh, an absolute uh, war between good uh, total good and total evil, right. then people will say, right, well, total good must, yes. must fight. Well, you described fight. it, didn't you, as, as like Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's, 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 as, as if the, Ukraine was, the Ukrainians were nice furry hobbits and the, the Russians were orcs. Yeah. Well, of course, this, this isn't true. Hmm. Uh, one of the problems of Ukraine and one of the reasons for the development of this crisis has been that there, are, there is more than one kind of Ukrainian. Particularly in the far west of Ukraine, there's this, always been a very strong strand of militant nationalism, right. which during the early years of the Second World War became entangled with the Nazis. And there it is, and there are people in Ukraine who continue to celebrate this. And in fact, President Zelensky has personally condemned demonstrations in support of this uh, SS division yes. being commemorated on the streets of Kiev. And it's not, it's not you don't have to be some kind of anti-Ukraine fanatic to say this is a problem. The other thing about these people is they were deeply involved in the pivotal moment of what's happening in Ukraine, namely the overthrow by violence of the democratically elected president Yanukovych mm. in 2014, which was the beginning of the avalanche which led ultimately to war. And I think that it, the, a basic understanding of that would make it a lot easier for people to grasp what's going on and to find a, a workable peace, because there are lots of other Ukrainians who absolutely disapprove of these uh, Nazi nostalgists and sympathizers, wouldn't dream of wearing uh, the SS Wolfsangel symbol, which mm. some of these people wear, uh, or indeed of commemorating the Ukrainian nationalist Stepan Bandera, who got mixed up with the Nazis at one point. So there are lots of Ukrainians who have nothing whatever to do with this yes. at all. I know. And but what you're we, expecting, We are of not course. trying to, and including President Zelensky, and I'm not trying to condemn them or make out no. Ukrainians and Nazis. But, but of course, what you're expecting is for people to actually read about something before they have an opinion on it, which these days is a very, very uh, controversial view. Of well, here's a, here's a fascinating thing. The <laughs> Canadian Parliament, and this is a, a body of, of a divide between, basically between the Conservative the Canadian Conservatives and the Canadian Liberal Party. And yes. it should, if it's, it's modelled on Westminster, it should contain large numbers of people of wide experience and knowledge. And yet none of them knew enough to say, hang on a minute, right. if this guy was fighting 
for Ukraine in 1945. What might he have been doing? Yes. Nobody spotted Why it. Why might they have been fighting the Russians? But of course, it's a very... They, um, do people even know uh, which side the Russians were on? Well, surely so, they do. Well, you see, you, you think so, but again, the, the Second World War has become a sort of scripture. Yeah. Uh, it's not... It ceased to be a war. It's become a, 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 a moral tale yeah. in which, again, a total good on one side, total bad on yeah. the other, and which makes it very, very hard to recognise that we, we, we would not have, I think, survived that war in Europe Although, not being for Stalin being on our side. Yeah, I mean, Stalin say, yeah. was a bad guy. He was. And, and many would say worse than Hitler and none of them was the people that he killed in, indiscriminately. Yeah, but it, also, it's... you've also got the, the, the bad, good guy image being somewhat kind of um, confused by the, those people who think that Winston Churchill was a horrible man and he was in charge of a horrible organisation called the British War Machine and they shouldn't have bombed Dresden and they shouldn't have done all sorts of horrible things like made the Bengal famine worse, which, of course, he didn't do. Yeah. But, you know, there's these myths abroad, aren't there? Well, there are myths and there are truths. The more, it's complex. I am one of those, for instance, who is very much against the uh, the bombing of German civilians during the Second World War. It yeah. wasn't just Dresden, by the way. It was practically every German yeah. city and it wasn't... They didn't bomb the civilians by accident while they were trying to hit munitions factories. No. They bombed them deliberately right. in their homes. It was a policy, and it's, it, it, I've, I've written at length about this, and it's, I think it needs to be re-examined in this country. So the, the thing is, is more... But they were also bombing Obviously us. Obviously, the though, right they? side won. Yeah. For goodness sake, uh, Hitler had to be defeated, and there was no question of that. One of the reasons why we accepted uh, the alliance with Stalin was because Hitler had to be defeated. And it, it, as, as Churchill said in Parliament the day Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, if, if Hitler invaded hell, I would at least say a few kind words in the House of Commons yeah. about the devil. Right. Uh, it's Exactly right. You take any allies against... And also, against yeah, I mean, like in a that. perfect world, you wouldn't want to bomb civilians, but e equally, they were bombing us. Well, I know that because my mother was running yeah, into they, uh, they air raid were, shelters and, every night. And very wicked it was too. Yeah. And a horrible thing, all those who experienced it uh, would, would tell you what a, what a horrible thing was and, and and I would say not a thing we should copy and also the argument about its military value which is fascinating is the it seems to me to come down and says it didn't have any military value but I, we can have that discussion uh, happy to do so but my main purpose here is in the the illusion that people have about Ukraine being some sort of perfect mm. saintly country yeah. uh, is making it harder for them to understand what's going on and also makes it much harder for people to support, which I think really badly needs public support in Western Europe and the United States, the idea that we need to get a negotiated peace. Now, if you think that this is a, a, a straightforward struggle between total good and total evil, why would you want a negotiated right. peace? You say, well, let's have, a, let's have a total victory, and a lot of people argue for that. There are. And if you had a total victory, the problem is, and I'm not at all sure it's attainable, but if the, if the Russians were totally defeated, and say, for instance, uh, Ukraine took, took back Crimea militarily, mm. then there's no doubt whatever that the current Russian government would fall, in which case, who would take over? Yeah, and, and they'd I think probably come back and have another we, go. You have, to be, you have to be very careful. Remember, this is a nuclear-armed country. Yeah. And we, we need to worry very much right. about who runs and it. And we'll come, we'll come to that in a second, because Grant Schatz has been making some noises, which is slightly terrifying that he's even... The, Secretary of State for Defence. It's always terrifying. I mean, this is a man who went. This is a man who went to Spain on holiday um, when he was transport secretary. Didn't know that there was going to be a ban on flying backwards and forwards into Britain because of COVID, and he was stuck in Spain. I mean, that's what you need to know about him. But I was watching, interestingly, an interview with Helen Mirren uh, over the weekend. I don't know if you saw um, uh, Laura Kunzberg's show, she's playing now um, uh, Golda Meir in a yeah. new movie, which looks really interesting. 
but the clip they used was of her having come from Ukraine, living in Ukraine when she was a little girl, and her father making them hide from the Cossacks because the Cossacks would come of a night into sort of Jewish areas and basically slaughter oh, Jewish people. I, the, the, and when you think about that, that context of the Ukraine history, you think there's a lot more going on here. Well, the anti-Semitism in that part of the world, and this wasn't just what is now Ukraine, but uh, the Russian Empire as well, yeah. was horrific. And yeah. it's now largely eclipsed by mm. what happened in Germany after 1933. But yeah. it, it was, it was, Russia was notorious uh, for its, its horrible treatment of, uh, of Jews for, yeah. for many, many uh, centuries, actually. So that's, that's, again, a complicating factor in, mm. in this. Uh, I, I'm lucky enough to have been to, lived in, uh, and talked to many people in these areas. Yeah. So I, I, I know, but the problem is if I try and, almost invariably, if I try and say, look, it's more complicated than that, what, yeah. what immediately happens is somebody says, oh, well, you're a Russian spy. Right. So, and that's the end of conversation. I'm trying to make the point that what happened in mm. the Canadian parliament, and actually, I, I'm not, I, I'm, I, I, I pity rather than, I'm enraged by a lot of the behavior of the people in that parliament, they, they, they are, they're the victims of a general lack of knowledge about the past, yeah. indeed of geography, which absolutely embraces so much of our political and media classes. Yes. I'm sorry for them, but I'm also uh, appalled that people who know so little should be in charge of mm. major policy. Yeah, I mean, that, I think, unfortunately, is a, a sign of our times, isn't it? That we, yes. that we have, by probably no accident, uh, the worst education system I think that we've ever had. But it's not uh, an accident. And, and, and people, well, <laughs> you've said that you. before. I've written a um, book about that. Yeah, no, I know you have. Um, and, and, you know, here we are. This is the, 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 sort of the zenith of all of that. Uh, the final, uh, final sort of chapter, if you like, is these people are running stuff now and they don't know anything. I mean, we've got uh, two headlines that I wanted to, to talk to you about with right. Ukraine uh, involved. Um, ben Wallace apparently told the Prime Minister to give another £2 billion to Ukraine. We also saw at the weekend Grant Shapps, who is now laughably the Secretary of State for Defence, um, suggesting that we put British troops in there. We've got Rishi Sunak ruling it out this morning in a very small piece in the Times, kind of buried away, um, saying that, uh, you know, he doesn't think that what Shapps said about training being brought closer to the fighting was a good idea. I had the impression there were British troops in Ukraine. Not many, of course, but undertaking various roles. But um, I, I, I think that's meant to be a think, secret. Though. No, I think it has been reported. Yeah. Uh, now, but I, uh, sure, I don't. I, I think the, the the difficulty is uh, that again, what does Ben Wallace, uh, who, who's got got this reputation as being Mister Graf and Mister Military and yeah. everything else, what does he actually know about this subject? Yeah. Does he think that if and what is this two billion pounds? Uh, what, if this just happens to people in politics. Like, oh, we could spend two billion here. Where does those where yeah, two billion pounds absolutely. come from precisely. They come from the, the hard-earned money of taxpayers yeah. who are forced to hand them over to the government, supposedly for the national benefit. Well, if the nation is going to be spending that much money on the Ukraine war, then I think it needs to have a much, much higher quality debate on why we're involved in it in yes. the first place, in which and, people and who maybe, are in which people who are doubtful about it get heard. And maybe even what it is that they're going to do with the money. Well, Precisely. there is that too, because this money goes to a country, and this also happened in Iraq on an even grander scale, a country which is notorious for corruption. Right. I mean, absolutely notorious. And they don't have no secret of it. There was this recent business of the recruiting, uh, the army recruiting uh, chiefs being sacked en masse because of the amount of corruption that was going on there. Everybody knows that in countries of this kind. Also happens in Russia, by the way, yeah. that if you, if you give money to the military, huge amounts of it end up in other people's pockets and right. never reach the front line. 
That's, that's normal in corrupt countries. Right. Well, in the reconstruction of Iraq, as it's laughingly called, with companies like Halliburton going in um, and, and uh, all sorts of, you know, American sort of, you know, rescues uh, that, were, that were paid for by supposedly American companies. I mean, nobody really knows what happens to most of that money either. You know, some very interesting accounts my friend Patrick Coburn wrote about. Just actually huge piles of dollar bills just disappearing yeah. from the green zone. Right. And nobody really knowing what became of them. And, the non and this, is, this is money, as I say, which has been taken from people, uh, right. school dinner ladies, uh, street cleaners, out of their taxes mm. uh, and, and, and funneled into who knows where. We have to be more careful yeah. with it and we have to have a more serious debate about if we're going to spend at that level. Yes, and I mean, as far as the military side of it goes, there's very little talked about that. I mean, I don't remember reading, for example, in the best part of the last month or so, any accounts of what the military activity is. You have to if look any. very carefully. You really do. I, 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 I loathe The Economist as a magazine. I think it's so smug and so wrong, mm. but it still makes a serious effort to cover what's going on. And mm. I think what's, what comes out is that the, the, the great Ukrainian offensive, which we were told was going to change, the state of affairs during the summer. The of has, well, it's happened, uh, but in this kind of warfare where you're, you're up against somebody who is mined and fortified mm. and enfiladed with artillery, huge areas of ground, it's not easy to take ground. That's, it's basically, we're back to 1916. Yeah. It's a 1916-type warfare happening again in 2023. Yeah. It doesn't change all that much. Drones and things make a difference, but they don't make it possible to break through a heavily defended area without incredibly high casualties, of which there have been many. Mm. And the, the Ukrainians keep quiet about this, but it is beginning to leak out. The number of young men killed, and not just killed, but disfigured and maimed, is... Horrible. Yeah, and people. These are these are human beings, of course. And it, it's happening on the other side too. And the, 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 as a result of the folly of politicians of, of whom of whom they know nothing, I just don't think we should sit here and let this carry on happening without some attempt mm. to bring it to an yeah. end. Indeed. Now we've only got a minute left, but I must ask you about the BBC and Radio Four in oh, particular. Um, Nick so Robinson. Funny. Nick Robinson has given a great reason why nobody's um, or why a million people are not watching or listening to it anymore. He says it's because they're averse to the news. They've gone <laughs> off the news. No, Nick, you're wrong. No. You've gone off your terrible Today programme. Yes. The, the mega bore. Yeah. Three hours of mega boredom and it really lecturing. Is awful. I, I used to listen to it. I, well, it was required listening, I, wasn't it? No, I, can't, I keep turning it off because I can't stand it. Yeah. Well, when, I, you, I, when you and I were on the same paper, The Express. I used to listen to it on my way into work. I used to put it on in the morning as soon as I woke up. It was required listening. It was your duty. You know, you now, had to listen to it. Now, I know it's so many people in my trade and mm. outside who just say, oh, I can't be bothered anymore. Yeah. It's, just, it's like woman's hour anyway, right. without the charm. Yeah, I think that's a very good description of it. Well, listen, uh, charming to see you as ever, Peter. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Peter Hitchens, of course, will be part of the Peter Hitchens Half Hour podcast uh, coming up a little bit later on. Next, though, uh, we're going to be going to Isabel Oakshot uh, because up in uh, Manchester, Tory higher-ups are facing backbench pressure from MPs to lower taxes. The Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has told Talk TV earlier that we aren't quite there yet. Have a listen. What I will be saying in my speech this afternoon... Is, is very clear. If we want faster growth, if we want to stop ever ratcheting taxes, that is possible. But there are no shortcuts. We have to make it easier for businesses to grow. We have to be more careful with the way that we spend taxpayers' money on public services. We have to be prepared to reform the welfare state. These are difficult decisions, but with Rishi Sunak, we have a prime minister who's willing to take those difficult decisions. And we are very confident if we do that, we can get the country back on a path to lower tax. 
Uh, I'm delighted now to be joined by Talk TV's international editor, Isabel Oakshaw, up in Manchester. Isabel, um, very good morning to you. Welcome to the new world of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I love the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I hope it gets ever more independent. Um, now, I'm here in the heart of uh, Manchester at the Tory party conference, and you've just played a clip of the Chancellor telling the party faithful here exactly what they don't want to hear. Uh, what they want to hear here is some good red meat, some proper Tory agenda stuff, so tax cuts. And it's exactly the opposite coming from this government. I've just slipped out of a... Um, main stage event, which is the Energy Secretary, Claire Catino, who is one of Rishi Sunak's protégés, talking about the future of energy security in this country. And after a bit of rambling, she eventually got to a point that actually the audience did like, which is that you cannot force people into net zero, into policies uh, that will make them worse off and expect them to support you. Uh, and that did get some muted applause. Uh, but really what we have here is a lot of um, very despondent Tory party faithful, many of whom have paid a lot of money to be here. So they are uh, those that still have some hope uh, in the future of the party and the prospects for winning the next election. But so far, they haven't really heard anything to put a spring in their step. No, it's all a bit too much like a marketing exercise at the moment, isn't it? Where they're kind of promising things and saying, this is the super-duper new Rishi Sunak kind of action man figure, um, who, I mean, I must say, I don't often give Sir Keir Starmer much credit for his epithets, but uh, in action man, I thought it was quite good, because he doesn't really do much, does he? I mean, look, I think the difficulty they've got is that, and this is in common with any kind of dying administration that's been in power for a very long time, is that to listen to the, the Chancellor uh, on the airwaves this morning and, and in the excellent interview that he gave uh, the new breakfast show, saying that, you know, we've got to reduce the number of people claiming benefits unnecessarily. Well, look, they've been in power for 13 years. And this was an Ian Duncan Smith agenda when the Tories were in opposition, before David Cameron came in. Ian Duncan Smith did amazing, very, very good work on how to actually get people off benefits and into work. And yet, all these years on, the Tories are promising the same thing, having abjectly failed to deliver it. So it's a really hard sell. And, you know, when you talk to delegates here, uh, the people that have to go out onto doorsteps, candidates, uh, those who've been selected for the party in the next election, their difficulty is, what do they tell voters on the doorstep, what is the selling point? What can they actually persuade people that the Tory party has to offer? Well, I think that's the big problem, isn't it? Because we now know um, that after the 13 years, as you say, that they've been in, um, things appear to have got a lot worse. Now, some of that might not be their fault. Some people might have given them the benefit of the doubt a couple of years ago, but I don't think they do anymore. You know, they can't keep making the same excuse. You might remember, for years, they, they made the excuse that, all oh, Labour messed it all up, you know, it's, it's all Labour's fault. Even as far on as sort of 2015, you're kind of going, you can't keep blaming them. Like, you can't keep blaming COVID. You can't keep blaming Brexit. You know, find some solutions. And looming over the whole thing is the spectre of the small boats, which are yeah. actually getting ever bigger boats. Mm. And, you know, I was at a, a party last night at which the Prime Minister briefly spoke. 
And he actually stood up there and said, we've introduced the toughest yet legislation on small boats. Well, you know, there was sort of applause in the audience. These were his fans, as it were. Um, but in the wider country, it's no use telling people that you've introduced the toughest legislation on small boats, a theoretical achievement, when what they actually see is more small boats coming over every single day. And when you talk to candidates here, when you talk to delegates, to those who are tramping the streets in anticipation of an election next year, trying to persuade people to stick with the Conservative Party, it is the immigration system, both legal migration and illegal, that is most difficult for them to counter, to come up with any uh, kind of positive argument for why the Conservatives can be trusted to get a grip on this. Yes, and it must be quite a weird conference. You'll have been to many, many more of these than most people, Isabel, because normally, whenever he wasn't Prime Minister, everyone was waiting to see what Boris Johnson was going to do. And would he come up and, you know, hijack the entire conference by setting himself up in a, in a you know, adjacent theatre and having the biggest audience of the week? Presumably, I hear, anyway, he's not coming uh, this week. Is, has the Boris kind of effect completely disappeared? Do people talk about him anymore? So what's a bit strange is there was a sort of Boris event last night and it was probably ironically the most well-attended event at this conference, which was a, a dinner um, which was nothing to do with the main agenda. And it was for something called the Conservative Democratic Organisation, which is basically a sort of Boris vehicle. Um, and what was very odd about that, well, first of all, that Boris wasn't there, although he's their kind of figurehead. Um, but secondly, that Nigel Farage was there. Uh, and there was a... Uh, Nigel Farage, of course, not of the Conservative right. Party, but of Reform UK. Uh, there was also the keynote speech at that dinner where people had paid tickets as a proper glitzy sit-down event. Was from Priti Patel, no longer in government, but very much a darling of the Tory right who seemed to have spent much of her speech paying tribute to Nigel Farage. So, as always with these conferences, the fun is to be had well away from the main conference hall. It's what's going on in the fringes. And there's an event coming up in about an hour's time uh, with Liz Truss. Remember her? The yeah. briefest prime minister ever. She is this year's equivalent of Jacob Rees-Mogg or um, Boris Johnson of the past, the mischief-maker at conference. I think Priti Patel is speaking at this event as well. And that will be used, I think, uh, by reporters here uh, to talk about, you know, the, the split in the Tory party between those who want to go back to a uh, sort of free market uh, tax-cutting agenda and, you know, the dismal, uh, that's my interpretation anyway, Jeremy Hunt, who's telling us all that we have to wait and be very sensible. Oh, and by the way, uh, apparently cutting inflation is now a, a tax cut. That's the best tax cut we could hope for. Yes, I heard that yesterday from Rishi Sunak's own lips and I thought, is that really the best you've got? That, you know, we can't give you any tax cuts, but actually cutting inflation, which has got nothing to do with us and it's got absolutely uh, nothing to do with the Bank of England, it's just kind of happening because it would anyway, but we'll claim credit for it. And that's now a tax benefit. I mean, what a load of old cobblers, I'm sorry. I mean, it is a bit of an insult to voters, really, because it relies on them being so economically illiterate that they're not able to understand that cutting inflation, i.e. reducing the pace at which things are still getting more expensive, is not the same as a tax cut. You know, but 
somehow this government thinks that people are too stupid to realise that and they will think that if the rate of things getting more expensive slows down, that's the same as actually less tax. Doesn't stack up really to most voters, I think. No. Well, it doesn't, but maybe you can give them this message from the Independent Republic. In the Times today, uh, Isabel, it says, uh, if you want to win over the boss, praise your colleagues. So no more of this nasty backstabbing, no more of this, you know, he's no good, can I have his job? Um, you should all just go around telling everybody what a brilliant job they're doing and then everyone will be fine. Yeah, I just don't think that's going to work here either, will it? So we've got Jeremy Hunt uh, doing the keynote speech this afternoon. Maybe he's going to dazzle us. Maybe he will lift some spirits and we'll have to come back to you after that and uh, report back to the Independent Republic. Yes. But at the moment, I'm thinking that Mike Graham may have more potential for garnering votes on the streets of Britain than this government. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Although I'm damned with faint praise, I think, there. Thank you very much indeed. Isabel Oakshaw, uh, brilliantly reporting in uh, from Tory party conference. Good afternoon. You're watching The Independent Republican Mike Graham on Talk TV. Coming up, this could be the end of the line for HS2. Rishi Sunak sent to spend £700 million on funding bus routes instead. Full of buses. Meghan Markle is setting her sights on the White House with rumours she'll run for the Senator in California. And covering striking doctor's shifts is costing billions and millions of pounds, with dialer doctors often priced at three grand a pop and more. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, we've got news coming up very shortly. We've got William Clouston coming into the studio uh, to talk to us as well about the problems with HS2. Uh, the Tories are up in Manchester, but what on earth are they doing there? Because, of course, if they'd wanted to go by HS2, they wouldn't have actually even got there. We're going to talk to William Clouston and we'll find out from him what his belief is on exactly what is going on uh, up in the Tory party conference in Manchester because the Chancellor will not commit to tax cuts ahead of the next election, despite growing calls from inside of his own party. Jeremy Hunt is expected to lay out new wage plans at the Tory party conference later. He'll also raise the minimum wage to at least £11 an hour and crack down on benefits. Meanwhile, Jeremy Hunt's appeared to distance himself from Suella Braverman's migration speech, telling Talk TV that he wouldn't use her words. The Chancellor, whose wife is Chinese, stressed the benefits uh, of all of that. But who knows exactly where he's going? I'm not sure he does. Let's talk to the leader of the Social Democratic Party, William Clouston, uh, who's keeping an eye on all of these things. William, a very good afternoon to you. Morning. Uh, afternoon now, yes. Yeah, I know. Listen, I know you've been waiting a long time, but we are actually now in the afternoon. But listen, yeah. um, Tory party conference in Manchester, which for me is a kind of irony in itself, having more or less decided to cut Manchester off from the uh, HS2 link that's going to come from Birmingham. Rishi Sunak was a bit non-committal at the weekend when he was asked directly, are you going to do it? And he said, oh, I'm mm. not going to comment on speculation. But you mm. live in the north of England, in the northeast, and, you know, there are many different ways they could have spent the money they've already spent. What's going on? Uh, it's a disaster. Um, HS2 is the wrong uh, scheme in the wrong place. And we've now got a situation where costs have escalated and the government's in a real bind because even it's on its own figures, uh, the cost-benefit ratio is negative. I mean, they're actually spending, spending a pound uh, and getting 90 pounds back. And even that, I think, is vastly exaggerated. So the main issue for Sunak, and it was very revealing yesterday that he couldn't confirm 
that the uh, HS2 scheme would reach Manchester. They've already, already got rid of the eastern leg. Um, he couldn't confirm, I think probably because he didn't want to embarrass himself in Manchester as the Tory party uh, has its conference there. But it's a disaster. And, and frankly, it's pride, really, and also the influence of the undue influence of large construction companies, which is preventing this scheme from being cut. It should be cut. It was the wrong scheme in the wrong place. It was the wrong scheme at the wrong time. It wasn't necessary then when it was proposed. And it certainly isn't necessary now because we know one thing about rail travel. Uh, it's become incredibly difficult thanks to the strikes, thanks to the um, ancient railways that we run the trains on, and thanks to the rather kind of ludicrously Byzantine kind of way that rail companies operate. You know, you've got network rail in charge of bits of it. You've got all these operating companies in charge of other bits of it. You've got rolling stock, which is great in some places and terrible in others. Um, and people have basically stopped traveling on the trains unless it's at the weekend. So the yeah. idea that HS2 is going to be this high, expensive, really, really cool way to travel if you're a businessman at some point, you know, a businesswoman in the, in the future, is madness. And also, here's something else for you. I don't know if you saw this at the weekend. Something like um, 45 minutes or so out of the hour's travel to Birmingham is in a tunnel. So you can't yeah. even see anything. <laughs> well, it's in a tunnel. It's in a tunnel, Mike, because the uh, pressure groups and the residents in that part, the south of England there, um, are, are very powerful. And that's also one of the reasons why this scheme is costing £250 million per mile. And comparable schemes in Europe uh, are costing, you know, a fraction of that, you know, literally a fraction of that. Yeah. So it's a, it's a disaster. Um, it ne even on the projected benefits, it was never really about the north, this scheme. It was sucking more investment into, into London and the southeast. And that's the chronic problem that we have in this country. Far better scheme would have been across uh, the major cities in the north. Everyone knows that. Um, and, and, and yet... They're in a bind because, you know, they'd have to admit that it was a catastrophic decision in the first place. There's also this awful thing about sunk cost, the idea that they spent billions on it already. And they if they cut it, then, of course, those billions are straight down the drain. But the, the main issue is that if we don't cut this scheme, you, you're committing to spend billions upon billions of capital expenditure, which could be spent elsewhere. And I've said before, Leeds uh, is the biggest city in, in Europe without a tram. This is the home of trams. Trams were pretty much invented in Leeds, and yet right. it doesn't have a tram system. Uh, it's a nightmare. Now, a tram system in Leeds would cost about $1.5 That's about six months' worth of, uh, of HS2 expenditure. It's a mass uh, misallocation of resources, yeah. and it doesn't even go to London. It's going to Old Oak uh, Common. So I, I, just, I, I think we, we need a, a government with a bit of... Um, courage and say, look, this was just a mistake. Stop well, they it. seem incapable, don't they, William, of actually making decisions with any regard to kind of fiscal responsibility? Because, mm. you know, we've got a headline on the front page of The Telegraph today uh, where Ben Wallace apparently told Rishi Sunak to give another £2 billion, um, to Ukraine. Well, I'll tell you what, mm. how about you give £1.5 to Leeds and do what you suggest, build a tram line? That's right. I mean, we're governed by people that actually don't get that the role of the... British state is to look after the British people. Half of the civil service have their uh, minds on uh, global poverty and global issues. They're thinking about Lagos when they should be thinking about Leeds. Yeah. And you need to serve us. And, and we're, we're not, we just don't have that now. So it's a shambles. And you talked in your, in your intro about how divided the Tories are in Manchester. They can't agree on uh, migration. They can't even agree on the language on that issue. They don't know what they're doing on tax or anything else. And the sooner they're flushed, the better. The only fear is, and I, I am 
concerned about this is that I think Labour would be even worse. Yeah, I think so. I mean, as for Jeremy Hunt, I've got this from Scott in Rotherham. Jeremy Hunt, I can think of a better name for him. No tax cuts and raising the living wage by a pittance, which won't help anyone really, and saying he needs to reform benefits. But he says that like nobody's entitled to them and that's how he's getting money back. How about uh, not paying millions of taxpayers cash every day on illegal immigrants instead? It's ridiculous. I mean, yeah, it's, it's getting to the point now where I'm kind of agreeing with that from our, our friend Scott in Rotherham, because this morning, again, William, we're told uh, Jeremy Hunt wants to crack down on benefits claimants who refuse to look for work. Well, there are two problems here. One is that, as most people have now realised, the poor in this country are more likely to be working for a living than actually on benefits, because the people on benefits mm. are doing better than some of the low-paid workers in this country. Meanwhile, you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of migrants coming in who, at some point or other, will take a job away from somebody who needs one, um, and it's never going to be any better unless they either make the benefits less, uh, less attractive um, or the reasons for coming here from overseas illegally less attractive. Well, that's true, but they don't even, they didn't even try, Mike. I mean, the model they've had for you know, 15, 20 years is open labour markets. So if the health service or another organisation wants some labour, they'll just ship it in uh, ready. And there's no attempt to train... British people, the focus on British people. We've got five, over five and a half million people on out of work benefits, and that is only going to grow, and the, the bill for that is increasing. So it's a, a major, major problem. And yet, the health service still doesn't focus on training its own, our own uh, nurses and doctors and medical staff. It, it's quite content to import people uh, and not worry about it. So it's, it's partly the model itself that is the problem, Mike. Um, I, you know, and, and the gap between, as you say, between uh, households on, on benefits entirely and, and the, the people on, on low wages. I mean, actually, I, I, I am in favour of uh, uh, minimum wage going up. And, you know, if it goes up to £11, I think that's fine. Uh, and actually, it may help uh, incentivise, you know, may, may assist the gap between people on out-of-work benefits and, and people that are working. The working right. poor are right on the front line in this. And what about this narrative from Suella Bravman about multiculturalism? I mean, you live in a different part of the country to me. You probably see other parts of the north of England more often than I do. What I've been told and what I see just on a weekly basis in terms of the news stories is that there are now parts of northern cities of this country uh, and northern towns which are segregated by one means or another, not necessarily between what you would call... Um, um, you know, like immigrants versus people who have been here for a long time, but between different mm. immigrant groups. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a tendency for people to self-segregate and to congregate in, uh, within communities that, uh, you know, reflect their values and, and, and so on. So, yeah, I mean, if, I, if you go onto the ONS uh, website and have a look at the census uh, data, you can do it by street, actually. And for all the talk of unity, actually, we're becoming quite a divided society. And we have been for many years in some of the, particularly some of the uh, northern and uh, northwestern uh, towns like Blackburn uh, and so on, um, and, and some in West Yorkshire as well, quite segregated. So, and this actually is very granular. You can actually zoom in and see how segregated it is almost by street to street. So, I mean, I, I would ask, is that what we want? Is that a unified society that's going to build the solidarity to sort of uh, work together and mm. to build uh, an us, a new us? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think so. And what about all of this uh, talk around the European Convention on Human Rights and whether or not we should ditch it or whether we should ignore it or whether we should ask them to change it? I mean, is that all just smoke and mirrors then, do you think? Uh, it's interlinked, Mike. I think, you know, we, we've got to be governed by people that have the will 
to have a national border that sticks. And um, for as long as the, the post-war protocols and conventions remain in place, and for, for as long as we're uh, members of the ECHR, it will be very will be fettered. In if we if we decide we don't we want to secure a border, will be fettered by the lawyers. Um, so it's a matter of self-governance. Uh, it what what annoys me is that a lot of our political class and cultural class don't realise that it's actually our call. It's our democratic call. Um, it, it it depends whether we incorporate some of this international legislation into our own law, uh, and it's our call if we don't. But we, we're so used to being governed by external uh, multinational uh, agencies like the EU or the WTO or the others yeah. that we're not used to self-governance. But actually what the British people want is it's their call democratically uh, to decide who arrives in this country and under what circumstances, which I think is a very reasonable yeah. call. Do you think actually, William, and that's an interesting thought you've just proffered there, that we became kind of dependent upon the European Union for so long because we could always say as a government, well, we can't do that because the EU won't let us. And we were one of the few countries that ever said those words because the French never paid any attention to EU rules, neither did the Spanish, neither did the Italians or the Germans, you know. But we could always hang back and go, no, 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 we can't do that. I know you want it, but, you know, it's not possible. EU rules don't allow us. And I wonder now whether we've just forgotten how to govern. Oh, that's true. There's a lot in that. Um... Stephen Barrett, the lawyer, gave some evidence to a Commons yeah. committee recently and had to remind them that it's their call. You know, I mean, Parliament decides how we're governed in this country and uh, it's their call. But they've been so uh, marinated in this attitude of being governed by... And it's partly, Mike, it's partly a, a lack of responsibility. It's a very good way of avoiding responsibility, isn't it, to say... Oh, these things yeah. are decided. Well, oh, these things are decided by lawyers. It's not my responsibility. Well, no, it really is your responsibility. Yeah. And the British people want a collection of politicians that have the guts to represent them and to represent this country's interests. That's yeah. what we're looking for. Exactly right. I mean, lawyers are not there to prevent things from happening. They're there to make things possible. Because I've always taken the view with lawyers that you instruct lawyers. They don't instruct you. You say to a lawyer, "This is what I want. You tell me how we can get it done." And if you can't do that, then you're no use to me. That's basically the rule. That's it. But, and Jonathan's assumption is quite right. The structure that we've got of international networks and uh, international agreements um, does have an impact on democracy. And we have to decide, ultimately, these things are political, democratic questions, not uh, questions that should be primarily decided by legal arbitration. They're, they're literally democracy is at stake here. Who governs us? What happens here? And how can we govern us, ourselves in our own interests? That's what's at stake. And it's, yeah. it's not a, a legal question primarily. It's a democratic one. Mm. Yeah, absolutely right. And, I mean, as far as the Tory party conference goes, um, as I say, they've got a bit of a nerve holding it in Manchester. Um, what are you hearing from your kind of constituents in your neck of the woods about what they want in order to vote Tory, in order to sort of be won back, if you like? What do they want? Well, they're, they're unlikely. I mean, there's a lot of disillusionment. There's a lot of people looking at the whole thing now and saying you've had 30, 13 years of Tory rule. And under that time, uh, you know, woke ideology and extreme progressivism has, has washed over the institutions. Taxes are very high. Uh, productivity is low. A lot of people are allowed to work benefits and the economy is struggling and debt is rising. So a lot of people are saying, what, what have they achieved? Well, not very much. Yeah. I think the sad thing is, that uh, elections, uh, until we change the electoral system, we're, we're stuck with these two major parties that select candidates that are indistinguishable. And I suspect a lot of people will really uh, hold their noses and vote 
the least worst option. I mean, the SDP, we're, we're going to have over 100 candidates throughout the country, so hopefully about 20 plus percent of the public will be able to vote for us and some alternatives. But a lot of pe- a lot of t- 2019 Tories probably might probably won't vote. Mm. Yeah, that's my feeling as well. I think they just won't bother going out there because they can't mm. actually bring themselves to do it. William, good to talk mm. to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. And welcome to the new uh, shiny independent Republican, Mike Graham. And we'll have you back soon in the studio uh, itself. That's William Clouston, the head of the uh, Social Democratic Party. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.